Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 67 for the first half of March 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about for this episode is conspiracy ideas related to the Russian meteor. As with the last episode on Schumann Resonance, there is no specific conspiracy related to the Chelyabinsk meteor, so I'll be starting out with the basics of the object and then get into a few of the more popular conspiracies. I'm also going to apologize in advance for my absolutely horrible pronunciation of non-English words during this episode. As the work week of February 11th was drawing to a close, the world of space enthusiasts was growing in excitation with the close approach of asteroid 2012 DA-14, an asteroid roughly 100 feet or 30 meters across with an estimated mass of 40,000 metric tons. The asteroid was to pass as close as 27,700 kilometers or about 17,200 miles from the surface of the planet. It was within the orbit of most satellites. It was the closest approach for a known object of that size since we'd been monitoring them and able to detect any. NASA was all set to stream live coverage, and the Goldstone radar facility was going to measure its size and spin, and lots of amateur astronomers were going to watch it and photograph it as it crossed Earth's orbit, going from the south to north over the course of several hours. It wouldn't be visible to the unaided human eye, but it still would have been pretty neat to see with the telescope. I awoke much earlier than usual on Friday morning, around 8am instead of the usual 11 o'clock or so, and I happened to see a Facebook post by Phil Plate that a large meteor was seen over some hard-to-pronounce Russian city. His initial thoughts were that it was a hoax until more reports and imagery started to come in. Over the next several hours, the Chelyabinsk meteor briefly became the biggest news in the world. The facts as we know them are that on February 15, 2013, at 9.20 local time, or 3.20 UTC, 16 hours before the closest approach of 2012 DA-14, a meteor was observed streaming over the skies of Chelyabinsk in a sort of the eastern, middle, southern part of Russia. It's in the southern Ural mountain region. The meteor exploded in an airburst roughly 15 to 25 kilometers, or 9 to 16 miles, above the ground, with the atmosphere absorbing most of the energy, which is estimated at about 500 kilotons of TNT, or 20 to 30 times more powerful than the atomic bombs that the United States detonated over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It was bright enough to move sun-cast shadows brighter than the sun itself, and witnesses reported feeling heat from the explosion. But it created a powerful shockwave, or sonic boom, that spread over the area and shattered glass, set off car alarms, and did significant damage. The glass shattering injured about 1,500 people, two of them seriously. Over 4,300 buildings in six cities were damaged. As I'm recording this about two weeks later, we know quite a bit based off of all of the reports and video. The mass was estimated to be at about 10,000 tons, and it was a stony meteor. With that mass, it was probably about 15 to 20 meters across, or about 60% the size of 2012 DA-14. It entered the atmosphere at about 18 kilometers per second, or about 40,000 miles per hour. 
That's about Mach 52, or 52 times the speed of sound at sea level. It came from just a bit south of due east. It was the largest known meteorite to enter Earth's atmosphere since the Tunguska event of 1908, and the low-frequency sound energy from the blast wave was the largest ever recorded, lasting about 32 seconds and traveling as far as Antarctica and Greenland, picked up by instruments that were designed to detect nuclear explosions. So we really don't have data that dates prior to about 1950. Because of the hundreds, if not thousands, of recordings with precise timestamps and GPS locations noted, the previous orbit of the asteroid, or the object, has been calculated to be elliptical, with the closest approach to the Sun of about 0.82 plus or minus 0.03 AU, and the farthest distance of 2.64 plus or minus 0.49 AU, meaning that it crossed the orbits of both Mars and Earth, and so it belonged to a class of Earth-crossing asteroids known as Apollos. By the way, an AU stands for Astronomical Unit, which is the distance between the Earth and the Sun. The reason that everyone and their pet llama had dash cams on their cars is that there were so many car accidents in Russia, or there are so many car accidents in Russia, that the insurance companies won't pay out claims unless you can prove that you weren't at fault. And so a lot of people have cameras just recording everything. While the world was paying attention to Chelyabinsk, and then to 2012 DA-14 as it approached, a fireball was seen over California and the United States of America about a day later. All three of these events were just a few days after a similar one over Cuba. These are all coincidences, and that's the majority of the basics of what are known of these events. Or at least, that's what they want you to think. When something like this occurs, you can bet your bottom a marrow that good old Richard Hoagland, the official science advisor, restricted, of Coast to Coast AM, is going to make an appearance. With a host who refuses to challenge almost all of their guests, and who stated repeatedly that he believes that there are no coincidences, you can pretty much guess where the conversation went. Richard correctly pointed out that the Russian event could not have been a piece of 2012 DA-14, the orbits are completely different. But despite all of his ramblings, and not getting to the point, Richard did claim that he doesn't think, rather that he can prove instead that at least one of the two events, either 2012 DA-14 or the Chelyabinsk meteor, wasn't natural. He claimed that of the two, it was 2012 DA-14, that it was a natural object, but it was unnaturally sent to us. He then cherry-picked numbers, to say that it took 33 hours to cross the Earth-Moon system, and that its closest approach was at his magical 19.5 o'clock GMD. Of course, he claims that it's 19.5 latitude that's important, not time. But the astronauts who, quote, vectored it towards us wanted Richard to pick up on the unnaturality of it by using its closest approach time, by orchestrating it to appear just when Richard would notice it. Of course, it happened to appear closest to Earth at 19.4, but that's, you know, just five minutes, and what's five minutes between friends? In reality, they seem related simply because of their coincidental time, and because we actually knew about them. 2012 DA-14 is not big as far as asteroids go. Funding for asteroid detection is geared towards finding everything larger than a kilometer across. That's something that's going to destroy a state or a small country. 
In 2005, Congress instead changed it to, instead of finding everything one kilometer across, to finding everything 140 meters across and larger. As of now, we've probably found most things larger than a kilometer across, but we're still pretty far from finding everything that's 140 meters across. The reason is in part because they're so hard to find, because they're going to be faint, because they're small, but also because there are so many of them. My dissertation research was, in part, creating a vast database of all of the craters on Mars that are one kilometer across and larger. I drew circles, about 384,000 of them tracing these crater rims that are kilometer and larger across. 384,000. If I extend the range to 0.9 kilometers and larger, as opposed to one kilometer, I'm going down to 0.9 kilometers, that adds about 100,000 craters, as in 25% again as many as our one kilometer across and larger are added in just that extra 100 meter range. So that means that if we're extending our asteroid search from one kilometer asteroids and larger to 140 meters and larger, you're increasing the numbers literally exponentially. This particular asteroid, asteroid 2012 DA14, is about 30 meters across. Not one kilometer, not 900 meters, not 300 meters, but 30 meters. Objects this size are incredibly difficult to find, and they're really only observed when they're very, very close to Earth. This one happened to have been found during its previous closest approach a year ago, about February 23rd, 2012. While it was the closest known object of that size to approach Earth this close, I can pretty much guarantee you that many more asteroids of that size and larger have passed just as close in even the last century, but they passed completely undetected because of their small size, even though that's the size of a medium office building. Meanwhile, the odds of an object the size of the one seen over Chelyabinsk hitting Earth are estimated to be about 1-10% to in any given year, meaning that if you were to average them out over the course of many thousands of years, one should hit every 10 to 100 years. The uncertainty is because we don't really know how many of these objects are actually out there. Remember, the Chelyabinsk one was only 60% the size of 2012 DA-14, so it's even smaller meaning that there are even more of them out there, but we don't know exactly how many. The number is based off of simulations and observations based on larger asteroids and the assumed distribution of sizes. It was both coincidence and it seemed like it wasn't coincidence because we actually knew about it at this particular time. But it wasn't just a coincidence in timing that set people off on conspiracy ideas. The internet was quickly ablaze with how God hates Russia, or Flying Spaghetti Monster hates Russia. In other words, the previous known really big impact was Tunguska, in the western half of Russia. This one, a century later, was also in Russia. Clearly, the thinking goes, if asteroid impacts are random events, then if one hit Russia, the other one shouldn't have. That's the problem with statistics. Humans really suck at them. We think we have an intuitive grasp of what's going on with statistics, but we don't. Asteroid strikes are random events, and if you were to look at the distribution of, say, 10,000 of the last meteor strikes on Earth, you would see that. It would be a random distribution. The problem is, 
you can't see that because the majority of Earth is uninhabited and over 70% of it is water. When you have just a sample size of two events, unrelated events, each one can hit whenever or wherever it wants. It's like flipping a coin. Getting heads the first time has nothing to do with getting heads the second time. In addition to that, Russia's really big. It's almost as big as China and the United States, or China and Canada, or Canada and the United States combined, and it covers 11% of all of the world's land area. So, if a meteor is going to fall over a country, it's more likely to randomly fall over Russia than any other country in the world by nearly a factor of two. Probably not started by, but definitely fueled by, the ultra-nationalist parliamentarian Vladimir Zironovsky, again, I apologize for pronunciation, one of the leading conspiracy theories is that this was a secret weapons test by the United States against the motherland. Ignoring reality, I'll just say Vladimir said, quote, Nothing will ever fall out there. If something falls, it's people doing that. People are the instigators of wars, the provocateurs. When he said out there, as in stuff doesn't fall from out there, he meant from space. This is why I say he ignores reality. Stuff does fall from space. The orbit that was calculated can be done by anyone who takes the time to look at the data and do the math. The orbit shows that this could not possibly have come from the United States, unless you want to argue that the United States has a secret missile launch program that can both get stuff up to speeds over 17 times faster than the fastest known publicly missile, and that this special magical launch system is stationed out around Mars, or at least it's well beyond the Earth-Moon system. Of course, if it can't be a US-based or a terrestrial-based missile, then the next logical conclusion, at least for some people, is that it is a UFO. Enter Richard C. Hoagland again. Richard went on coast to coast just four days after the event, on February 19th, 2013, to state that in some photos he sees two separate contrails left by the meteor, meaning that it had airfoils and it was stabilized and therefore it was not natural. What Richard is more than happy to ignore is that he's wrong and that the images show one contrail that splits into two when the meteor breaks up into two chunks. That doesn't stop him from telling people to go out and pick up debris because it should be UFO pieces or parts of machinery that would prove that he's right. Again, he completely ignores that modern society leaves scraps of stuff all over the place. Otherwise, the standard story is that this was simply a UFO that was shot down. Somehow, the Russians have technology that can both track and destroy something traveling over 17 times faster than their fastest missile. That's intriguing. If you don't like the aliens, nor the missile conspiracy, then we can go to Planet X. Not THE Planet X, of course, but one of Planet X's groupies. Gordon James Giannotto was a second-time guest on Coast to Coast AM on February 19th, just after Hoagland. He's an interesting chap who claims to have an IQ of over 200 and had many privileges as a child due to his father's status. He also claims that he's somewhat psychic. And he also happens to be a devotee of Zachariah Sitchin as well as Nancy Leader, somehow managing to merge those two Planet X stories into one in his own mind. 
He also claimed in his original interview back in 2010 that Planet X would definitely be seen and announced by the end of that year. He is also convinced that NASA has known about Planet X for over 50 years, despite the fact that it only formed, as in NASA was created, in 1958. And then he later claimed that NASA discovered Planet X in 1983. See episode 54 for that. So somehow, NASA's known about an object for over 50 years, and yet they only discovered it in 1983. Maybe that's the same math he used to calculate his IQ of over 200. Anyway, Gordon was on and epitomized one of the other conspiracy claims that I've heard about the Chelyabinsk explosion, that it was a meteor, a natural meteor, but that it came from the quote-unquote tail of Planet X. As in, Planet X has a swarm of space junk behind it, and one of those pieces just happened to explode over Russia. As I said, it was one of Planet X's groupies. Again, other than all of the problems related to Planet X not existing that I've detailed in five episodes so far, a problem with this is the orbit. We can figure out what the orbit of this object was before it hit Earth, and so we know that it was not from anything that any of the Planet X proponents claim is where Planet X is or came from or has an orbit that's similar to this object. Of course, given that anything out of the ordinary is going to cause some people to look for, I'll say, non-rational explanations, and well, some choose conspiracies, others choose aliens, others choose Planet X, others choose missiles, some are going to choose God. One of the callers into the Open Lines portion of Coast Coast AM the night after this happened linked the explosion into the Christian Bible's Book of Revelation, while the senior Orthodox bishop of Chelyabinsk said, quote, From the scriptures we know that the Lord often sends people signs and warnings via natural forces. End quote. I don't really have much to say about this particular opinion. To bring things back to Earth and away from conspiracies, scams have cropped up. With such a large meteor that exploded, many small pieces did survive their descent, and the meteorite hunt was on. Lots have been found. Lots have been sold. Lots of stuff that has been sold is not part of the Chelyabinsk meteor. Lots of stuff that has been sold are not even meteorites. Unfortunately, just as human nature is to link unrelated but similar events, there will always be those trying to make a quick ruble off of a popular event by scamming others. There is no new news to report in this episode, and again, there's no Q&A this episode. In terms of feedback, this one is related to the last episode on the Schumann Resonance. Brian B. from Colorado, USA, as in the guy that I'll be doing the TAM workshop with, wrote in as an addendum to tell me that last year's TAM Million Dollar Challenge participant claimed that his magic bracelet worked on the Schumann Resonance. He quoted a page from Wikipedia, or a paragraph from the Wikipedia page, and then had quite a bit to say about it. I'm going to read some of the quotes because this episode is running a bit short, and some of you, while listening, may understand how I feel sometimes listening to Coast to Coast AM, like the five hours that I listened to in preparation for this particular episode. Anyway, 
The basic technology of what is inside our fashion pendant is what is called a Schumann resonator. What makes it so special, aside from what you will learn below, is how we designed the electronics. We are the first to create such a device that runs off of a standard watch battery and still lasts for an estimated one year. The energy emitted from our fashion pendant is also the first of its kind to travel through people. Schumann resonance is the fundamental tuning fork of the planet, and it is used by all living things as a base frequency that tunes and balances the mind and body. The Schumann resonance frequency range is the same as the human brain, theta and alpha waves, and these brain waves are in part tuned by the Schumann resonance frequency range. It's also evident as seen by an EEG machine that the human brain responds extremely well to the Schumann resonance and responds very badly to the 60 Hz EMF emitted by electrical wiring and power lines. Even NASA continues to research the impact of Schumann resonance. Yeah. So it's time for the puzzler, where I attempt each episode to attempt to ask an attempted critical thinking question based loosely on the material discussed in the main segment. I actually have a belated puzzler for last episode, but there wasn't one during the episode, so I'm going to pause for a moment with that and talk about the episode puzzler for this episode. This episode, with the main segment on the Chelyabinsk air blast, the puzzler, sent in by Jan, deals with that topic. How could you find out whether it was a comet or an asteroid that hit? And by asking when it hit, we mean hit the atmosphere, not necessarily hit the planet. So don't get me on any technicalities there. For the last episode, with the feedback in this episode on the Schumann Resonance, the puzzler is, how many logical fallacies can you spot, and what are they, in the quote about the fashion pendant? I will have the full quote on the website for this episode so that you can read it in your own leisure, or you can listen to my docile tones recited again over the strumming of the New Age music that I chose. So try to figure out the answers to both, or one or the other, or neither if you don't want to participate, and send them in to puzzler at sjrdesign.net. I'll discuss them, or attempt to discuss them, during the next episode. And that next episode will be about some of the political and technological conspiracies of Richard C. Hoagland. It'll be an interview with the pseudonymous expat. So if you have ideas for a puzzler topic on that, please send them in. And in terms of announcements for this episode, yes, assuming that you listened to the intro correctly, I did say that this episode was for the first half of March, not quarter. Sorry, but I have a crazy amount of other obligations through about March 22nd, and so there will only be two episodes this month. Also, why this episode comes out a day late. As I said, the next episode will be an interview with Expat about some of the more political and technological conspiracy ideas of Richard Hoagland. Expat is a journalist, or a former journalist, who worked at the same time as Richard did during the early days of the U.S. space program. If you have questions that you'd like to ask me to ask him, please send them in before about March 9th. That wraps up this topic for the 67th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. 
Thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed it and learned a lot at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sjrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, please use 1. the feedback form on the website, 2. an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net, 3. leave a comment on the page for this podcast or episode on the website, 4. leave a comment on the blog post for this episode, 5. leave a comment on the Facebook page for the podcast, or 6. send me a tweet at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback, even if I haven't responded for three or four months. Sorry. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Also, please do write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your portal or website, podcast, website, whatever, of choice. If you liked it, also tell people about it. More the merrier. <laughs>